Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Stocks for beginners. No hospital wings or college dormitories have ever been named by an indexer. They've been named by people who invested in one or two stocks and rode them for a period of time. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatillo. When we first start learning to invest in the stock market, we're told about the importance of diversification. It seems to make sense. If one of the stocks in your portfolio drops or even disappears altogether, then you still have other holdings to protect your capital. My guest today is Carl Kaufman, who is going to talk about the dangers of diversification. Hello, Carl. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me on the show. And thanks for coming on. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Carl is from American Dream Investing, a family-owned financial membership service, a news publication that shares independent and unconventional thoughts on building wealth through the stock market. So let's just go back a little bit in time. Many of us are not lucky enough to have a mentor in their family to guide us financially from an early age. Tell us about your dad. Yeah, my dad was obviously my inspiration. He is the reason why I called the business American Dream Investing. He was born into poverty in Brooklyn, New York. His father died when he was seven years old, I think. And my dad was the first member of his family to attend and graduate college. He basically worked his way through the corporate world, never a Wall Street guy, never a professional investor. And he found that he was doing so well teaching himself and learning about the stock market and investing on his own that he retired at a relatively young age and devoted the rest of his life to investing. And that also involved a a move to Florida as well at some stage? Yeah, he moved down here and I was visiting at the time before I moved down here. And we always wanted to be in in business together. And over time, I had uh, a lot of family and friends that would come up to him and ask him what he was investing in or ask him what he thought of a particular investment or a stock. And he would always be willing to share what he was into. And so, like I said, we always wanted to start a business together. I came up with the idea that we should share his trades with the world so that anybody could access what a successful individual investor is doing and how he's managing his own portfolio. So we built that system out and we send real-time text and trade alerts whenever we make a trade. Sadly, my dad passed away last year, but he taught me everything he knows about the market. We've been pretty much working together on investing for about 20 years. And uh, I've taken over the family portfolio now and investing like he taught me as well as with my own spin on it. What are some of the um, things that you learned as you were growing up, what are some of the things that he shared with you? Well, first and foremost was definitely to think for yourself, that you don't have to be pigeonholed as an individual investor. You can pick and choose from any kind of philosophy you want. When I was about 20, 
Uh, it was when we really started working together. And he gave me a copy of Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street, the seminal book on, it, on investing for the individual investor written by you know, Peter Lynch, one of the greatest institutional investors of all time. He gave me that. He said, come back to me after you read this book and let's talk investing and see what you have to invest in. It's an interesting book, isn't it, Peter Lynch's book? I've only just uh, read it recently. I mean, it's got some great lessons, but I just wonder whether it would resonate today because it was written pre-internet and uh, so many things have changed since then. If anything, the individual investor has even more of an advantage now than when he wrote it because information is so available, because tools are so available to us as individual investors, where you don't have to call up your stockbroker and pay hundreds of dollars for commissions just to make a trade. You can just go into your pocket and, you know, for free, make any trade you want, have access to analyst reports, and any kind of news is instantly delivered to you as well as every other investor. So, you know, if anything, since Lynch wrote the book in the mid 80s, things have progressed even more so where we don't have to worry about rebalancing our portfolios or answering to anyone except maybe our spouses <laughs> about uh, how our portfolio is doing. Can we just return to your father for a moment? Because he kind of skipped through his history pretty quickly. So he grew up poor in Brooklyn, and then suddenly he's, he's making good money in the stock market. Where did that start? I mean, obviously, you need a, a grub stake to get started rather than uh, from nothing. Tell us a little bit about that uh, path. Yeah, my dad was a scientist and engineer, and he worked for a food packaging company where a lot of his inventions now are still on the shelves. He started off counting broken cookies for Nabisco and worked his way up into having 15, 16 different patents. So throughout his corporate career, he would save his money and teach himself how to invest. You know, Back in the 70s when he probably got started, he would go to the library and read the value line research reports for free. He would watch Louis Ruckheiser's Wall Street Week every Friday with my mom. And, you know, later on, it would be CNBC always on in his study, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Morningstar. He's completely self-taught. And as you work and build up a nest egg, you have a little more leverage. And he was never afraid to take risks. One of the big risks that he took was his company offered a like stock option kind of plan in a retirement account. And he would switch money back and forth between the stock options and a more passive approach based on how he thought the stock would be doing at the time, whether it was around earnings reports or other news. So he, he was never afraid to to take risks and go big. He wasn't spreading his money around to hundreds of different stocks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
in the introduction, I mentioned that um, you're not a big fan of diversification. What are the dangers of diversification? Well, for an individual investor, you don't have a team of researchers with you. So if you're going to pick stocks, you really only have the focus and attention that you could really give to a handful of stocks. For us in American Dream Investing and my father's portfolio now that I'm managing, we have three stocks that are about 90% of the entire portfolio. And the other 10% is always shifting and changing around based on what we believe are the defining characteristics of those stocks, whether or not that we think they have growth potential. We're trading in and out of those stocks, as well as the top three. So we're actively monitoring all that at a time. Now, the dangers of diversification really come into play when you're passively investing in an index or ETF or sector because, I mean, first off, the S&P 500 now is so concentrated in just a few handful of tech stocks to begin with. You know, I think the top five or 10 stocks, I don't know the exact numbers, but they comprise a, a ridiculous percentage. And, you know, you get 400 and something other stocks that are just not going to perform. And so when I first started writing for Forbes.com, I remember Macy's was a real dog. Under Armour was a real dog. And those were all included in the S&P 500 index. So, you know, not only are you getting the outperformers, you're also getting the underperformers that are dragging down your returns. You're getting the good with the bad, aren't you? You're getting the good with the bad. And I know in the S&P 500, there are many, many stocks that I would never choose if I were, you know, as a stock picker, I would never want to own those stocks. You know, I mean, they're good enough to be in the top 500 companies, but, you know, some of them are barely hanging on or they've, their better days are behind them. So you're basically at the mercy of a category that you're not choosing. You know, my dad always taught me that it's very important to have control over your money and your decisions with your money. And so, you know, at American Dream Investing, we we stick to just a few stocks that we know everything about. And, you know, you're protected from risk that way. You know, look, the environment can always change for certain stocks. And that's the danger of having a concentrated portfolio is that the story could change instantaneously. But you have the flexibility to just cut your ties with the company. Another thing my dad taught me was don't fall in love with the stock. And so you can always just sell out and use that cash for better purposes. Can you share what those top three companies are? Sure. We like Apple as our number one pick. Uh, obviously. Oh, you're such a Warren Buffett kind of guy, aren't you? <laughs> I know. Well, you know, if Warren Buffett is concentrated in Apple, that's not a bad place to be. And he's done really well. It might be his top investment of all time <laughs> for those people who are studying Warren Buffett. For the other two, we have two tobacco stocks because they are just efficient and margin generating machines that pay wonderful dividends. And so the benefit of that is that we're basically creating an annuity for ourselves by the big dividend yield that we understand is supported by their cash. 
we're not concerned about the cash running out for those companies because of the nature of their product. You've just mentioned before as well about your dad telling you not to fall in love with companies. And this is something that I notice when, you know, everyone's standing around the barbecue talking about what they're investing in. They love the story of the company and people really do seem to love having a story and being able to talk about it. But this is not necessarily the best way to invest, is it? No. Well, part of Peter Lynch's popular contribution to investing was the whole invest in what you know philosophy. And that should be taken with a grain of salt as far as I'm concerned, because just because you know something and you've studied it, it doesn't mean it's a great investment. The problem with that is that you really need to understand the financials as well. So, you know, people who glanced over that book will say, oh, invest in what you know. Well, there's a lineup out outside of Starbucks every day. They must be doing well. That might already be priced into the stock. You don't know if their financials can support that, if their free cash flow is continuing to grow over time, if their earnings are, are growing. Those are the, the two top things that I look for in a stock, whether they're growing their earnings because stock prices follow earnings and whether or not their free cash flow is growing over time. What it sounds like to me is you've got a core portfolio, which is, I guess, the backbone, the strength of your portfolio. And then the other stocks that you're looking at and investing in are only a small proportion. Is that part of the risk management that you practice? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, of those top three, obviously, we spend most of our focus on that. And so, you know, anyone signing up for our service obviously can have a look into the portfolio, see the three stocks that we're 90% invested in and cancel the next day. So, you know, the real value is showing how we actively manage it day to day because I'm looking at the charts, you know, from 9.30 a.m. Eastern time until 4 p.m. Eastern time and, and thinking about it pretty much all the time. Uh, you know, it's a passion and obsession for me. <laughs> Long-term traders looking at five-minute charts. <laughs> I know, right? That's the thing. It's uh, it's not being pigeonholed into just long-term traders because I could buy and sell the next day if the story just changes overnight or all of a sudden I see the CEO on CNBC and I see him sweating profusely trying to answer a question and he's squirming in front of the cameras because he's obviously telling a lie. But as far as risk management... Well, the other stocks are constantly jumping in terms of their weight in the portfolio. And the more they get added, we add to those positions, the more time we spend with them. And it is a way of kind of spreading risk a little bit because we want to make sure that, you know, those top three are not going anywhere. Those three companies are not going anywhere (laughs) unless uh, all of a sudden iPhones give you brain cancer and we find this out tomorrow, then I don't think Apple is in big, big trouble in the short term. You know, long term, there are always challenges and you have to look at the competition and what kind of moat they have and whether or not they're continuing to grow their company. Apple just astounds me every quarter how they're able to be so nimble as a gigantic $2.5 trillion company. They say, we want to start doing wearables, and they turn into a Fortune 100 
division. They want to do Apple Music and services and all that stuff and iCloud. And that's a Fortune 100 company. It's just astounding. But if you were to come on CNBC tomorrow and tell me that something is dreadfully wrong with Apple and their earnings are going to suffer and it's a consistent pattern, well, I would certainly (laughs) revisit that investment because it goes down to my dad's philosophy of not falling in love with a stock. So overall then, is there a um, particular number of stocks that you would recommend in a portfolio, just a, a manageable amount? Yeah, I'd say the individual investor can't do more than 20 stocks in their portfolio. I just don't think anybody has the time or attention or resources to devote to truly understanding any more than 20 stocks. I think we have 12 in the portfolio right now. Uh, we've had 15 to 18 at different parts of the business's life. But you know, any more than 20 and you're really spreading yourself too thin. And I have a great quote about why a concentrated portfolio is, is a great one. It's from James Olschlager, who is the founder of Oak Associates. And the quote is, no hospital wings or college dormitories have ever been named by an indexer. They've been named by people who invested in one or two stocks and rode them for a period of time. So that was my dad's wealth philosophy as well, is that you find a few stocks that are winners, you hold on to them for a long time, and you trade within them and keep constantly revisiting that story. Something that I've learned making this podcast, I've been learning lots of uh, lessons here, is that you've really got to know yourself when you're investing. And if you're going to be picking individual stocks, you've got to be prepared to spend a lot of time to get yourself to this stage where you've got the commitment and the knowledge to be confident in your decisions. And what I often say to people is, okay, if you're not going to be doing that, just go and buy an index fund, just go and get ETFs and let someone else look after things for you. Do you find that when people come to you that they want easy answers by getting stock picks? Yeah, absolutely. And these days, obviously, there's a lot of focus on meme stocks and GameStop and cryptocurrency and Tesla and all of these high flyers and people just want to get rich quick. I would suggest that 95% of the population, if not more, should just stick with index funds because it takes a lot of work, a lot of dedication, and there is a lot of risk involved. You have to be sure that you're okay with that. In my opinion, the dividend stocks provide a margin of safety, to use a term that Benjamin Graham coined, because Regardless of what kind of market environment we're in, whether it's a bull or a bear market, I know that I can count on those dividends, provided the companies can continue to pay them and they're not going out of business. I mean, during the pandemic last year, when all these companies were cutting their dividends, these two companies were raising theirs. And that shows a strong commitment to the dividend. That serves to generate cash within your portfolio that you can then use to either buy more of those stocks, buy other stocks, or go on vacation. You could do whatever you want with that cash. That's the beauty of of having that protection. I just wanted to return a little bit to what we were talking about previously, about when you do buy an index fund, you're buying the good with the bad. I was talking to another guest yesterday who was concerned about the rise of what he calls zombie companies, companies that basically 
they're large companies, and I can't think of any examples at the moment, but they're often very large companies. But it's only because interest rates are so low at the moment that they can continue operating and servicing their debt levels. Have you noticed any phenomenon like that? Yeah, there's stories all over all over the market. I mean, the interest rates are so low, but inflation is so high also. You have stocks that are that are issuing debt at insanely low levels for them. And investors are snapping that up because they're so desperate for yield. Another reason to have these dividend stocks that are paying 7%. But yeah, the low interest rates definitely are propping up a lot of companies that probably would not survive had the Fed not dropped rates to near zero. So on your website, you talk about a 20.93% annual return over the last 10 years, which which is pretty good. But some investors, especially the younger ones, may scoff at these kind of returns when compared to money being made in crypto and meme stocks. What do you have to say to that? Yeah. If they've been doing this for 10 years with crypto or Tesla or any other stock, and they're getting 20.93% a year then I'd be happy to give them a million bucks and follow whatever they're investing in. You know, these days it's hard not to make money in the market because interest rates are so low and stocks are doing crazy. You know, if you pick one of the right stocks, if you have picked Zoom early last year and wrote it for a little while, you know, we're seeing in the last year companies with 400% returns, 1000% returns, you know, that's great if you catch that wave. If you're still paddling around out there, well, there's no real short-term path to wealth. You might get rich quick, but you could just as easily lose it also. And so, you know, as a long-term investor with the future in mind and making sure that our companies are still going to be around 10 years and still going to be making the kind of profits they're doing, or we find new ones with similar prospects, I don't think that people could get used to it. And what kind of worries me is the younger generation thinking and expecting that this is the norm. I mean, having gone through the bubble, I I graduated college right after the, the tech bubble popped. We had the Great Recession in 2007, 2008. Stocks don't always go up. And so... You know, I see this younger generation that's playing with a lot of leverage thanks to easy interest rates and, and margin accounts being handed out like candy. And they think that they're going to get 100% return every week. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a little frightening. And I mean, look, there's been talk of a bubble for a very long time. And a bubble can keep expanding until it pops. And so we'll see what happens. But I could sleep well at night knowing that regardless of the bubble popping, I'm still going to be okay. So tell us about Bruce Springsteen and what Bruce and the boss can tell us about investing. (laughs) Yeah, this was one of my articles I wrote to subscribers. It corresponded with the five-year anniversary of my getting engaged at one of his concerts. How did you swing that? (laughs) Yeah, it was really cool. I had to uh, call in a couple favors with some friends of a friend. It was a bit of luck, a bit of persistence, which has worked out well for me over my life. A bit of making your own luck. But in any event, yeah, I got engaged at the Springsteen show here in Florida. He called out my name during the song. The lights and the jumbotron came up on me and I got down on my knee and proposed to my wife right there. It's up on YouTube if you look me up. 
it was an unbelievable moment. Send us the link. We'll post it in the blog post for the episode. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll send the link. What was the song he was playing? He was playing his whole album, The River. And having known that he was doing this on the tour, there's a song, it's a deep cut called I Want to Marry You. And uh, I figured, well, you know, nobody tells the boss what to do. But if he would be so kind, this would be a perfect moment for him to set me up for this. And it worked out fantastically. Imagine if she said no. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually her idea. She was joking about it. And that popped the idea in my mind. And I wasn't going to give up until I made something happen. But anyway, tell us about um, the boss's investing lessons. Yes. So I wrote a fun piece about some songs and how they relate to the investing world, one of which is Atlantic City. Now, the boss being from New Jersey, he knows Atlantic City very well. But Atlantic City obviously has a lot of casinos and people think that investing is gambling or they confuse the two. And it can be, you know, to your earlier point, people are speculating in cryptocurrency or the hot stock at the moment. But, you know, when you're when you're an investor, you're actually owning a share of a real business. And you're doing work and research and that should support your decision. And your idea is to generate a profit over the long term. There's nothing wrong with gambling if if that's what you're into, if you're speculating, if you're day trading, whatever. There's nothing wrong as long as you acknowledge that that's what it is. For those who say that the stock market is gambling, you you can protect your downside so you're not losing all of your money. You know, you can go into a casino and put it all on black at the roulette wheel and lose your money like that. You know, with a good company that is a real business that has real earnings, you're not gambling if you're doing the work. I always like to say that um, a company that you invest in has thousands of employees all working for your behalf. That's it. And uh, yeah, one of the reasons I love dividends is that it's like getting a paycheck from a company that you don't have to work for. You know, you don't have to drive to work and answer to the boss. You're just getting a steady stream of income from this company based on their earnings. The next song that I chose as a lesson from the boss was Glory Days. You know, it's a great song. Sounds like a a fun sing-along bar song, but it's really about your best days being behind you. And you have to watch out for companies that have had their best days behind them. You know, there are plenty of companies in that S&P 500 index fund that are complacent and just relying on their cash cow businesses to kind of generate income for them. In the meantime, it's so easy for a young upstart to come in and kind of disrupt their business model in a way. You know, you look at Blockbuster and Netflix as the classic example of that and one last song. I had five of them, but uh, I'll only do three for, in the interest of time. That's okay. We might put a Spotify playlist together for the episode as well with all of them and link to your articles so people can get the, the, the full thing. Yeah, the third song. Great. The third song is Reason to Believe. It's uh, not a well-known song of his. It's from his Nebraska album. And the hardest thing, as you said before, you know, the hardest thing as an investor is managing emotions. And I'm about to release a book called The Ultimate Profit Playbook, which is kind of a workbook based on my dad and I and our philosophy. And it's everything we we do to, to investigate a company. And I spent a whole 
section of the book just discussing managing emotions because it is the most important thing. You know, it's hard to take a 20% drop in your investments. It's a very, very hard thing to process. But if you have the courage of your convictions, if you have that reason to believe that you're right about this stock over the long term, well, an enterprising investor can use that opportunity to pick up more at a depressed price. The stock market is the only place where when things are on sale, people don't buy. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's running for the doors. (laughs) Everyone's running for the doors. It's just, you know, human behavior in a panic. And so having that reason to believe is the real thing because the way I look at it, you don't lose any money until you sell. And so anything that I see on paper, you know, I take a deep breath, I swallow and I use that opportunity to say, well, maybe this is a good time to back up the truck and really add to my position at a lower price. If I think the business is going to survive and continue on. And you've got the courage of your convictions. That's it. So, Carl, tell us about American Dream Investing, how people can get in touch and um, the service that you offer. Yeah. So, what separates American Dream Investing from other stock picking services is that it's exactly what I'm doing. It's every move that I make in my family's portfolio. And it's not like an everyday trade alert service. If you look at some competitors out there, they're just sending you lots of information to kind of justify their existence. I don't believe in that. I think less is more because it's just so easy to be overwhelmed, especially as a beginning investor. Anyway, I send out text message and trade alerts and commentary on what I'm thinking about the market, the broader overall picture, what I think about the investments in the portfolio, and some other things that I'm looking at getting involved in as far as a good potential investment. And um, also, at the beginning of the episode, we usually we find out a bit more about uh, the guest, but uh, we talked about your father instead of you, but we'll put a lot more information about your biography and the experience that you've got in the, the episode blog post. Great. Okay, Carl, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Phil. This was a real pleasure. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 